In the Hollywood film Bruce Almighty, Jim Carrey plays a man whose life is falling apart. After the worst day of his life, he's driving along in in the pouring rain, and he's shouting out, and he asks God for a sign. He says, okay, God, you want me to talk to you? Then talk back. Tell me what's going on. What should I do? Just give me a sign. And there's a sign above the motorway that says, caution, caution. But he ignores it and carries on. I'm right here, he says. Speak to me. And at that moment, a pedestrian steps in front of the car, jumps back and shouts out, slow down. But he's still oblivious. He says, all I need is some guidance. Please send me a signal. And at that moment, a truck carrying a whole load of road signs pulls in front of his car, forcing him to slow down. And the car, the signs, you probably won't be able to read it here, but there's a, a picture from the film. The signs read, yield, wrong way, dead end, do not enter, stop. <laughs> He's got all these signs in front of him. And then he says, oh, well, I guess you don't care. Sometimes we miss the things that are right in front of us. Just give me a sign. Now, Pharaoh, in the Exodus account, gets ten signs. They're traditionally referred to as the ten plagues, but that's not what the Bible calls them. The Bible describes them as signs or wonders. Now, a sign in the world of the Bible is something from the physical world. It may not be anything extraordinary, but it's given a special meaning. So after the flood, the rainbow is given a special meaning as a sign. Jesus gave his followers a simple meal of bread and wine to remember his body and blood. They're signs. Things that, nothing unusual about them, but they're a thing to remember something in reality. The other word that the Bible uses is wonders. Now this is something unusual, often something disastrous. A disruption of the status quo. Something that makes you sit up and take note. Something that often carries a warning. A warning of worse things to come if you don't change direction. Pharaoh is given ten signs and wonders uh, by God who unleashes the forces of creation because Pharaoh will not let God's people go. Now these signs are not sort of randomly chosen. They are carefully selected because God, like a master teacher, has a lesson plan all worked out. And the goal of everything that happens is so that everyone will know the Lord. They will know who he is. We just read it there in uh, chapter 9. If you want to look back at it, uh, on uh, page 66, key section, verse 15, chapter 9, verse 15. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Everyone's got to know who this God is. Pharaoh, the Egyptians, the Israelites, everybody. It's a lesson plan. Most human beings, apparently, can only remember a list of six or seven things maximum. If you give people a list of ten things, they can usually recall six or seven. Maybe one or two of you here can do more than that. Some of us a bit less. So giving a list of ten is a way of underlining the lesson plan. There's no way of escaping this, who the Lord is. And these ten signs increase with intensity as time goes on. They start with inconvenience. So the first one is that the waters of the Nile River turn to blood, which is another word for red 
in the Hebrew language. Uh, the prophet Joel, in Joel 2, verse 31, says that of the, uh, the day of the Lord, let me find the verse, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon turned to blood. doesn't mean the moon literally be turned to blood, but it means the moon will go red. So the water goes red. It's unlikely that this means literal blood, but more likely means pollution on a massive scale that turns the water into something undrinkable and it gets into all the buckets and all the pots and it just makes life horrendous. It's a shot across the bows. It's clear who's done this. Moses and Aaron go out with the staff and the red only comes at their bidding. It's very inconvenient for the Egyptians, but they can do something about it. They can dig along the edge of the riverbank and get fresh water. The second sign is a massive infestation of frogs. Now, this is a little bit more inconvenient. Frogs everywhere. Frogs in your bed. Frogs in your kitchen. You know, fro- frogs in your, your wardrobe. There's a, then there's a swarm of gnats. Now, this is getting worse. I remember a few years ago taking a camping trip with an American friend who was a, a keen woodsman and hunter. He took me up to the middle of nowhere in uh, northern Maine, Massachusetts. And what I learned during that trip is that I was particularly tasty to mosquitoes, gnats, and other insects, whereas my friend was almost immune. I had DEET, you know, the, stu- the real heavy-duty stuff on. I got back, I, was, I, I, I had some shorts on, I, I sat down and counted 53 bites on one calf. This is getting inconvenient here. My friend had three on his entire body. Gnats! Now, up to this point, the Egyptian magicians had been able to reproduce the signs through some jiggery-pokery trickery. But with the gnats, they were left scratching their heads, as well as the rest of their bodies. They concluded, it is the finger of God. And they don't mean their own fingers. They mean that whatever they were doing before wasn't really to do with God. Somehow, this has gone beyond their pay grade. It's not a trick. It's as God at work. But the signs continue. That's the first three. Here's the next three. Flies. Swarms of flies. Followed by a devastating livestock disease. Think mad cow on a grand scale. Then everybody is afflicted by skin sores or boils. My wife's actually scratching her head. Glad it's getting to you, darling. Those are the first six signs. See how it's ramping up? Then the seventh sign escalates things even further. And at this point, the Lord expands on the purpose of the plagues, as we just read. He says, I could have wiped you out on day one, but I want you to know who I am. Everybody will know, and my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. But Pharaoh still continues to resist. And the seventh plague rains down massive hailstones. Now, I've got a list here of costly or deadly hailstorms, which I printed off from Wikipedia this morning. It's incredible how many bad hailstorms there are. July 1979 in Colorado, USA, a 40-minute hailstorm bombed Fort Collins, Colorado, with hail up to grapefruit size. 2,000 homes and 2,500 cars were severely damaged, and about 25 people were injured, mainly when hit on the head by the huge stones. A three-month-old baby died of a fractured skull, struck by a large hailstone while being carried by her mother. In March 2000, in Texas, the last known hail fatality occurred in the United States. The victim was a 19-year-old man who died from head injuries after being hit by a hailstone the size of a softball. Where's Matt Price? 
How big is a softball? Tennis ball? He's in the kids' club. In April 2001, in St. Louis, Missouri, a hailstorm occurred that cost over $2 billion in damage. The costliest hailstorm in American history. Many baseball-sized hail. Now, that's America. You can be glad you're living in Manchester, can't you? There was actually a storm in Britain. 1843, one of Britain's worst ever hailstorms, caused massive destruction. And the hailstones reached up to five feet deep in places. And I'll just finish with uh, northern India. One of the deadliest hailstorms of all time killed at least 230 people and 1,600 sheep and goats. Anyone who's interested in reading further, you can take this afterward. But you get the the vibe of the hailstones. Now, this kind of uh, storm happens in the natural world, but what happens here is that it comes at the bidding of Moses and Aaron. So nobody's in any doubt that God is behind it. The eighth sign is a swarm of locusts who just come in and strip the land of any vegetation that's left after the hail is finished. And by this stage, even Pharaoh's closest advisors, his servants, are saying to him, just throw in the towel. In chapter 10, verse 7, they they say, don't you realise that Egypt is ruined? But like Mrs. Thatcher... Pharaoh is not for turning. And the ninth plague has a note of fatality about it. Darkness. Just as the world began in total darkness, back in Genesis chapter 1, page 1 of the Bible, so now the land of Egypt is plunged into darkness. It's returned to a kind of pre-creation state. There's something final about this. Pharaoh warns Moses never to return again. He's cutting the phone line. There's no possibility of further communication. The lesson is over. Any future opportunities for signs are removed as far as Pharaoh's concerned. But there is one more to come. The final curtain. It is so final that the text draws out the description. Moses and Aaron return, uninvited, to warn the Egyptians of one last sign. It was the most severe, both personally and theologically, No one should live to see the death of a child. Yet the death of the firstborn is what happens. Everyone from Pharaoh down to the most humble servant in the kingdom. And in the Egyptian world, the firstborn son of Pharaoh is the incarnation of God himself. And this is therefore the final blow to the dynasty. The severing of royal succession. Pharaoh went ten rounds with Yahweh and lost. Now, the point of all this is not how, but wow. Christians tend to ask, how does this sermon apply to my life? We want to know, what does this sermon mean for me on Monday morning? How can you apply the plagues to your life? Just go and buy a few thousand frogs and stick them in your toilet, and you'll you'll know. But this text is doing something deeper. The main purpose of the lesson plan, the main point of the ten signs, is actually a call to worship. It's a call to worship. To worship the true God when all the fakes and the counterfeits have been exposed as a sham. And it calls us to that goal of worshipping God by telling us who this God is, what he's really like. He's not a God of our imagination. Some of these things we probably wouldn't have written. But this is what he's really like. And there are three points, I think, that we learn from this episode of these ten plagues. Firstly, he's the Lord of all creation. 
Secondly, he's the God of justice, love, and mercy. And thirdly, he's the giver of life and death. Amazing that most of those things came up in the songs, which were not uh, planned by me at any rate. So that was wonderful. Firstly, then, he's the Lord of all creation. He is real. A book was published a number of years ago by a writer called Francis Schaeffer. It had a simple title, but very profound. The God who is there. He's there. Unlike the Egyptian so-called gods and the magicians and Pharaoh, this tenfold lesson plan is designed to teach everyone that Yahweh, the living God, is in control. He's even in control of the environment, which the Egyptians worshipped and admired. He's in control of the process of deliverance as well. Pharaoh twists and turns and ducks and dives and lies and manipulates to no avail. The deliverance happens just as God said it would at the the start of chapter 7. Yahweh speaks. He answers. He responds. He is there. So let me ask, do you know him? Do you know this God? Have you engaged with him personally? Not just learned things about him, but taken your life to him, poured it out to him, sought his face, asked him to come to you and speak to you. You may think that God will not answer, but let me ask you, have you even tried? And for how long? He is real. I had an answer to prayer this week. It was so surprising. I was walking around the house with a silly smile on my face, looking up at the ceiling and going, thank you, Lord. He's real and he's powerful. And that's the second thing that comes out all through these ten signs. His power is cosmic. The ten signs are an example of what theologians call concurrence. Concurrence is where two things are happening at the same time. So God, for example, sends the rain, but we know that the rain comes through clouds. So where does the rain come from? God or clouds? Well, it's both, isn't it? The clouds are the agents. God is sending the rain. And here in these ten signs, we have things that are part of the natural world, but intensified and subjected to God's control. They're not supernatural things. They're hypernatural. The natural things just taken to the nth degree. God works through agents. He respects the world that he's made. And he shows what would happen if his creation were not held together by his love and by his principles. Ecological disaster, pandemic disease, a return to darkness and death. These are moments of decreation. They're the opposite of what the good God wants for his world. Water is no longer water. Insects and amphibians swarm out of control. The numbers, the, the size of things, the hailstone, it's, it's kind of beyond what it should be. Darkness that descends, it's almost tangible. It's pre-creation. The ten plagues show what happens when humankind exalts itself against God and makes its own gods. These are the consequences of idolatry. As Yeats famously wrote uh, in one of his poems, things fall apart, the centre cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Now after the last century, with its world wars, dictators, chemical and biological warfare, and atom bombs, we have seen what decreation looks like, haven't we? 
It's the opposite of what the faithful creator wants for his world. But what about you in your corner? You know that anything or any person that you exalt and you trust and you invest your life in, in the place of God, is what the Bible calls an idol, a false god. And as Pharaoh learned, your idols can't save you and they may kill you. You need to know the Lord. Really know him. Who can make the heavens and the earth do his bidding like this? Only the supreme ruler of the universe, the one who commands the forces of creation. So this tenfold lesson plan is designed to stop us in our tracks and make us reckon with someone who is much bigger than me. And what is he like, this Lord of all creation? You know, we live in a society, those of us are from the West, uh, a society that's deeply suspicious of power and those who wield it. We like uh, people with power to be accountable, and rightly so. But how does the Lord of all creation use his awesome power? He's not exactly accountable to any committees, is he? There is no one greater than himself who he has to give an account to. What is he like? What is his nature? Well, the answer is, he's the God of justice, love, and mercy. Justice. This week, the Manchester Evening News reported a story of a deaf and mute girl who was trafficked into Britain at about the age of 10 from Pakistan and kept as a virtual slave in the basement by a couple in Eccles, Salford. The couple, who have assets worth more than a million pounds, were ordered to pay the girl 101,000 pounds, 372 pence, under a compensation order made by the judge, Peter Lakin, for the forced labour of the victim, who cannot be named for legal reasons. The payment, of just over £100,000, was worked out on the basis of what she would have earned under minimum wage legislation for working for the family 12 hours a day, seven days a week, from 2003, with only 10 days off. The chief superintendent said, the money will in no way make up for what she went through over a number of years but it will help her move on with her life and continue her inspiring recovery from these awful events. Trading standards in the police raided the family home, five-bedroom home. Officers were shocked to discover the girl asleep in the cold, dark cellar. They noted that something was wrong when she got up, went upstairs, and instead of sitting on a chair in the kitchen, she went and sat on a little plastic stool. One officer likened her behaviour to that of an animal, not allowed to sit on the furniture, and an indication of her status in the house, where she had been raped multiple times. £100,000. Is that justice? We want justice, don't we? It's one of our deepest instincts. Well, the Bible says that Yahweh is the God of justice. And what we see in these ten signs are consequences. As we often remind our children, your actions will have a consequence. And they're consequences of the slavery that Pharaoh and his people have subjected the Israelites to. It isn't pretty, but God is dealing with the real world. The oppression of the Israelites was extended. It went on for a long time and their spirits were broken. Well, the plagues are drawn out. They really feel them. They're not instant. 
These Egyptians subjected the Israelites to a loss of well-being, to a loss of property, land, and even life by killing their children. And that's what happens in the Ten Signs. The Israelites had broken and crushed hearts and spirits. That's what happens to Egypt. They cried out. Ultimately, there was death. You see, there are consequences. God is not absent, and he's not ignorant of injustice. The bullies and the tyrants and the dictators will not finally get away with it. Justice will come. Martin Luther King was fond of the Exodus story. And he's also fond of saying, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice, not because of something about an impersonal universe, but because of a personal God who governs it and whose nature is to make things right. But, you know, justice on its own would give us quite an imbalanced picture of God. We need to fill in the other parts of the picture because the Bible says again and again, God is love. He's love. How is his love seen here? Well, how he fights for the Israelites. Not because they're deserving. They don't really know it. Not because they somehow deserve this more than any other people, but just because he loves them, because he set his great heart on them many years before, hundreds of years before, and he remembers his promise of love, and this shows us that God is a being who is burning with love. The prophet Ezekiel pictured God's relationship with the Israelites as Israel being like a rejected and shamed young woman, disowned and and kicked out and out in the gutter, and God coming along and embracing her and cleaning her up and dressing her and caring for her and looking after her and nurturing and finally marrying her. It's an image of the most passionate kind of relationship, image of a bride and a groom. That's what the Bible says God's relationship is to his people, love. But you know, there's an even bigger picture than that. Why does God set his love on Israel? Because of his love for the whole world. See, God's ultimate mission is not just to take one people and clean them up and make them good. His ultimate mission is recreation, to restore the whole world. And he's going to do it through agents. In the Old Testament, through Israel, and now through the church. The church of Jesus Christ is God's mission agency to the world. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness, as the flood. And because he's love, he is also merciful. He is merciful. And you know what? We even see that in the ten plagues. And you're thinking, I didn't notice much mercy while we were going through them. Well, think about the gradual nature of the plagues. Starting off with polluted water and frogs and gnats and flies and disease and boils. You know, there's, there are numerous opportunities to turn off the road here, the road to destruction. Pharaoh gets lots of time. He gets repeated offers of amnesty. Just throw down your arms. You can still back away from this. Even Pharaoh gets a second chance, and a third chance, and a fourth chance, and a fifth chance. I wonder what you and I would have done if the tables had been turned and we could have had power over Pharaoh. There's mercy Even in the plague of hailstones, God gives a warning. Look, is enough time. Get your your people and your livestock out of the fields in shelter. 
You could save your property if you listen. But you know, God's mercy does have limits. Ultimately, once Pharaoh has hardened his own heart and been stubborn and unteachable a number of times, finally, and quite terrifyingly, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. It's like a boat going down some white water rapids, fast-flowing river, and there's a number of times that the, 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 the people sailing the boat can get off. They can jump and swim, or they can steer it into the bank. There are various ways to get out, but they continue hurtling headlong towards a terrifying waterfall. And Pharaoh is like that. He has these opportunities to turn back, to give up, to go to the shore, but he will not. And so near the end, God gives him a shove downstream. And over he goes. So this is part of the nature of God too that we have to grasp if we're going to know the Lord. He's not cuddly. He's not safe. Behold the kindness and severity of God, the Apostle Paul writes. He is not to be trifled with. You cannot abuse his kindness forever. Many of you here play the guitar or other instruments, you know how when you play an instrument for a long time, you develop calluses so that in the end you just can't feel what's going on under there. You have no pain sensations left in your fingers. You build up this kind of thick layer of hard skin. Well, a hardened heart is like a heart with calluses on it until eventually it can't feel anymore. Conscience is totally blunted and then there's only judgment left. We have to know this God, this God of justice, love, and mercy. He's not two-dimensional. He's not your buddy. And the third and final thing that we learn about Yahweh, God of Israel, is that he's the giver of life and death. Now, we sang a song earlier on. We lift up our eyes, lift up our eyes, you're the giver of life. You know, the Egyptians worshipped most of the creatures in the natural world, they even worshipped the river. But the creature that was said to give the breath of life was the frog. Fancy that. Fancy singing. We lift up our eyes, lift up our eyes, you're the giver of life. To a frog. The ten signs show that there's only one giver of life. It's the living God, not the living frog. Even the very first preview kind of sign, you know, the, uh, the trailer, when he goes with the staff, throws it down, it becomes a snake. How can you change a staff made of dead wood into a living creature? Well, only the giver of life can do it. Now, whatever trickery these magicians managed to rustle up is clearly not of the same order as their snakes get swallowed up by Aaron's staff which then turns back into his star. You know, just as Pharaoh himself is going to get swallowed up later on in the Red Sea, this is a preview of forthcoming attractions. And because he's the giver of life, who can give life even to dead things, he has all rights reserved over life, including ours. Life is his to give and take. Those firstborn who died in Egypt, as tragic as it was, belonged to God, just as our lives and our firstborn belong to him. His ways are not our ways, and his paths are beyond tracing out. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. What a picture. What a God. The Lord of all creation. The God of justice, love, and mercy. The giver of life and death. We have to know the Lord if our lives are going to make any sense. But you know what? The New Testament 
takes us even higher. The gospel leads us to even more awe-inspiring heights because it introduces us to Jesus Christ, the embodiment of God on earth. Now, he, like God, is real. He is there. What power he displays? Power over creation. He can speak a word and calm a storm. He can multiply bread and fish, feed thousands of people. He has power over disease. He can heal people at a touch. He even has power over death. He can restore people back to life. He's the God of justice, love and mercy. Jesus is the most loving, merciful man who ever lived. And yet, too, he upheld God's standards of justice perfectly. And what we learn in the New Testament, in the Gospel, is that God's ultimate plan was to sacrifice his own firstborn son so that millions and millions of little pharaohs would have the offer of amnesty, the golden opportunity to avoid judgment and to taste life. Jesus was strong, powerful, but he willingly became weak. Jesus is the giver of life. Everything was made through and for him. He sustains all things, but he humbled himself even to death on the cross. Have you ever asked God for a sign? Just give me a sign. You know what? God hasn't given you ten signs. He's given you two. A cross and an empty tomb. Recorded for us in the pages of the New Testament. And you know what? The cross is the ultimate plague. The ultimate moment of decreation. The prince of life is murdered. Where light is swallowed up in darkness for three hours in the middle of the day. Where God's enemies do their worst to the darling son of heaven and spend their fury on him. Where Jesus takes all of our sickness and wrongdoing and the hailstones of God's anger pour down upon him and crush him. And he takes our sin and buries it in the heart of the sea. The ultimate plague falls on Jesus at the cross. And then the empty tomb is the ultimate promise. Death has now been defeated. Jesus is raised to life, never to die again. He has a new kind of body. He's raised for our justification, the New Testament says. Everyone who trusts him, who follows him, who lays their life upon him, will be saved and cleared and made right before God. So, in light of that God, the Lord of all creation, the God of justice, love and mercy, the giver of life and death, in light of the ultimate plague and the ultimate promise, what is a, a fitting response to this Lord? Do you know him? Do you know him? I said I was walking around the house this week with a silly grin on my face because of something that God had done and answered prayer in our family that I never thought was going to happen. And I looked at the ceiling and I said, who am I and who is my family that you should do this for me? Who am I and who is my family that you should do this for us? And that's what knowing the Lord should lead us to. To reverence, awe and adoration. Who am I, Lord Jesus Christ, that you should do this for me? And who is my family? And it should lead us also to trust and humility. The book of Hebrews says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You know, if you hear his voice today, it's not, it's not too late. You can still turn. 
God still has his offer of amnesty open. Don't harden your heart and keep hardening it until it's so calloused you can't hear or feel. And maybe a Christian here who is persisting in sin stubbornly and self-indulgently and you know that same sin, you are still doing it and in your heart of hearts it's going darker, you're turning in on yourself, you're getting smaller, you're turning in, you're hardening, you don't really believe all this anymore. Listen, friend, if you hear his voice today, turn, don't harden your heart anymore. He's the Lord of all creation, the God of justice, love and mercy. He gives life and death. Turn to him. And maybe here there's a sceptic. It's great that in this room there are many people, some of you are just looking in to the Christian faith. You're just coming and peering through the window of the church. But maybe there's a sceptic here today who knows it's time to submit to God. It's time to, it's time to get down on your knees and ask him to forgive you. It's time to change. Well, Let me invite you, let me even beg you, don't put it off. Come to him. He knows you. He loves you. He gave everything for you. He wants you to be with him. He wants to be your God and for you to be his man or woman. Will you come to Christ? Come to Jesus and live again today. And if you'd like to talk to one of us and pray with us about that, we would love to do so. Come see me afterwards. Come see Rachel. And either we'll pray with you or direct you to someone who would. Let's pray. God of wonders beyond our galaxy, you are holy and you are worthy of all our praise. We acknowledge your incredible, devastating actions in history, what you did to Egypt, and we acknowledge too that you were right to do what you, you will. And we thank you that you could have been, you could have been anything, but you, have, you are a God of justice, a God of love and of tender mercy. And we thank you for Jesus in whom we see all of those things in high definition. And we pray, dear Lord, help us to live lives that reflect the greatness of what you have done for us. Help us to live lives that are totally given over to you and joyful. Help us, each one, to live lives that are transformed. Send your spirit to us now so that we may live for you wholeheartedly and freely this week and forevermore. Because we ask it in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.